You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because therapy is expensive, and how else do we control our world? I'm Kritika H. Rao. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 77, Pull a Thread, Build a World. listeners, welcome back yet again. We are excited today to have Kritika Rao with us. Hi, how are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you very much. Uh, hi, listeners. I am super excited to be here. I am Kritika H. Rao. I'm the author of The Surviving Sky, which is my debut epic science fantasy. It's coming out soon to bookstores near you. The Surviving Sky is a story about a husband-wife duo who are trying to save their marriage as they try to save their floating plant city from crashing into jungle storms. It has a lot of really cool world building in it, and I think it is really escapist fantasy, and that is one of my favorite parts of world building, uh, and I'm super excited for it. Yay! We are so excited to have you, and I, um, I, I know I got an early copy of it, and I've been really, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, one of my favorite parts is actually that you did focus on a married couple, and I feel like that deserves an extra pitch because that's not that common in sci-fi fantasy to have an established married couple adults. with their problems. Adults with adult problems. <laughs> you know, with adult problems, and I, I loved that about it. It was just so refreshing. So yet another why you want to read this, listeners refreshing grown-up adult relationships with problems because adults have those it's great i know uh, you don't uh, see no. too much of that in fantasy so <laughs> yeah, i'm yeah. really excited that i can go in you know occupy that space a little bit yes wonderful and i'm wondering the categorization of science fantasy how would how would you describe that Ooh, you know i should really know this given that all <laughs> i write is science fantasy but what i essentially do is i take my favorite elements from science fiction and my favorite elements from fantasy and throw them in together and that's science fantasy for me so it has lots of tech in it and it has all of you know some tropes that you find in fantasy as well um, some that you find in science fiction um, explorations of technology questions that have to do with technology and how our world relates relates to that so things like that i think um, categorize science fantasy and that's epic science fantasy so you have the big world stakes as well excellent um, I know that our listeners um, love all elements of world building. So having kind of a different angle on not just the epic fantasy playground, but different kinds of playgrounds that we can play in is really cool. What is What would you say your favorite part of world building is? Oh, my favorite part of world building is the ability to get lost in a world and just truly escape into it. I mean, not that our world is not fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, look at these wonderful, interesting times that we live in, right? It's not that curse. <laughs> May you live in interesting times. <laughs> right? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to get lost elsewhere? So, yeah, it, it, whether it's books I love reading or the kind of books I really enjoy writing, you know, really immerse myself in that. I love it. Um, so... When we were talking about what to talk about for this episode, um, we kind of started riffing on the idea of depth versus breadth in world building. And I feel like a lot of times when we talk world building, we're talking about like all these different topics and like, you know, like a spreadsheet 
not that I'm casting shade on Marshall here, but all the different things that you need to have to build this world. And you said, hey, what if we talked about depth, going deep on a few particular places in your world building? Like, where do you see that difference? So with deep world building, I feel like it's a number of elements in how well they are explored in the many different ways that a few, a handful of elements in world building can be mined for storytelling, um, as opposed to wide or um, you know, in terms of breadth of world building, where you have several discrete world building elements that often perform just one single storytelling duty. So I really enjoy stories with um, a depth of world building. So you just have a handful of elements and you can just be super innovative with how they interact with each other and with the story and with characters and with the plot. So they can be super surprising. And I find that more realistic um, as opposed to just having a ton of shit in there, which only does, like, am I, am I allowed to say that? Yes, yes, you are. Yes. Yes, yes you are. Yes. <laughs> which only performed, like, one single duty for the story. So that's how I would distinguish uh, depth versus breadth. I love how you describe it as um, elements that you can mine for storytelling. That's a great way of putting it. And yeah, sort of like, which world building elements are are load-bearing for the plot? Which ones of them do you need to hold up the the ceiling that you're painting your magnificent masterpiece on? Mm-hmm. That metaphor got weird, but I'm sticking with it. I like it. I roll with it. The Sistine <laughs> Chapel of world-building <laughs> <laughs> results. Well, and what kind of a story are you trying to tell, too, right? Like, what, what themes, what elements, what kind of a story are you going to dig into can kind of start to point you in the direction of the world building elements that you're going to have to play with maybe more than others. If you're going to tell a story about growing up, then the elements of what does childhood look like in your world? It's like, that's going to be a thread that you're probably going to have to pull. Whereas maybe like what a crocodiles eat in your world, maybe not as important, maybe not something you need to dive into. I don't know. I think it also kind of forces you to think of each world building element as a three dimensional world building element. So, you know, you really pack a lot into it instead of having it for one thing and one thing alone. Um, So you kind of look at it from multiple different perspectives and give it that amount of richness, which you can, as I said earlier, mine for storytelling benefit. Uh, instead of just having it for one single thing, which you're like, okay, I'm done. You know, I've used it for one thing. Time to jump onto the next world building yeah. element. So you kind of avoid doing world building, this world builder's disease, I think, like, you know, succumbing <laughs> to that a little bit. Uh, I think if you if you tend to do <laughs> deep world building instead of, you know, whole breadth of it. I think there's also that you can take the element of having your multiple world building elements that then build upon each other like stack them like layers of flavor on on this in the same dish that then work together to create something you know with more depth and explosive power to it i think the element too of like if you're going to go deep on anything like it forces you to really think through all of the elements of that particular facet of world building like you can't get away with half-assing it and i think that it actually can help to avoid having your elements disjointed from each other that they're gonna have to work together because you've gone so deep on on the ones that you've gone into like you aren't just doing that surfacey scratch you know that you end up with kind of these disjointed pieces that don't necessarily mesh together or if you really kind of like drill down on them further you're like well but how does that work if you've got this over here um that that a lot of us you know because we're we're anal and 
a certain kind of nerd, we really worry about that. <laughs> so that depth can avoid that, that surfacey, oh, this doesn't actually fit together with all the other things that I'm putting in here problem that can arise. It also lets you think through if you add one more thing, what are all like the ripple ramifications that that's going to cause and how does that affect the base thing that you've already done? If you if you've done that sort of deep work on those things and you're not going you're not going to capsize the boat of your world like, we're doing some weird metaphors today yeah, this is... <laughs> <laughs> i feel like we're going really wide with yeah. our podcast right now we're <laughs> deep. all metaphors we possibly have we've done ceilings we've done food we've done boats we should just be doing like mines and holes because <laughs> <laughs> need to cover all of our elements really and... yes <laughs> but to your point marshall i i agree i think like with with world building sometimes, you know, just going as wide as it can, I think what it also does is it takes a plot to different places where you might not necessarily want it to go. But with deep world building, often you can keep the plot contained, um, you know, to your different POV characters and you can hint at a lot more, but you can show world building through um, through your plot elements too. So keeping it extremely contained, I think allows for deeper world building. I have definitely read books where it felt like the author, and I'm not going to call anybody out because that would be rude, but where it felt like the author made one too many world building choices and tried to make them all like equally important to the plot and the characters. And we've sort of talked before about about the, the, the Chanel advice of <laughs> take one thing off before you leave the house. <laughs> and at least for my taste, there have been times where it was like, this was one too many things to throw into this. You're wearing one too many accessories. There might be readers who love that and who'd be like, yeah, give me more. Slap a tiara on there, a few more rings, bring them all in at the same time. But I think you sort of can confuse the story and confuse the sense of what's important to your characters when there's too many dissociated things, too many things that aren't woven together into a comprehensive whole sort of slapped onto the story. Yeah, I think that the the do you have elements that are actually competing for each other's attention? can be a problem, yeah. right? Like, yeah. what am I supposed to be paying attention to right now? What's actually, what is important, not just to this world, but to the story, to these characters, what should I be picking up on? And and again, I think that sometimes that like, here's the grand tour of this place. And some of these things are just fun trivia. Maybe there are some readers who really love that um, to the, you know, to the detriment of I'm going to zero in on where the story is, where the characters are. But I, it can be, we've talked about, I think before the idea of on-ramping that your reader is mm -hmm. on-ramping onto your world and the more stuff that they have to figure out to get into it you know that can be a challenge and i mean the world that you build in shattered sky is so different and so complex but i felt like the on-ramping wasn't problematic because you focused in on the elements that we needed to know about that we needed to understand to get these characters to get the plot so kudos on that. Well done. I, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. I think there's also the flip side of it where, um, and recently I've started to really enjoy uh, works of fiction like that, where you are kind of thrown into um, the world and you kind of have to figure things out, almost like a puzzle, but they all kind of add in together. Like by the end of it, you're like, oh my God, this is a very self-contained story. To my mind, Gideon the Ninth is very much like that. You get thrown into the world right away and there's not a lot of exposition there's not a lot of like explanation about what each world building element is but the more you kind of 
immerse yourself into the book and into the world, they all kind of come alive and things start to make sense and you realize just how deep the world building really is instead of being wide, which uh, at a first read, you're just like, oh my God, there's all these terms and you know, there's so much happening and I don't really know what's going on. But that's the beauty of a book like that often because it's deceptively wide, but the more you read it, it tends to be actually uh, deeper than you know, in, at first sight. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the advantage of having that sort of narrow focus, deep build sort of thing, especially when you're on ramping, is that even if you're even if your on ramp is steep, which you know a lot of books that are more on the weirder side for 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 fantasy, it's going to have to be steep. But if you also have like all these other sort of like side elements competing for it, it's like it's like going up a steep on ramp to get to a very fast highway. But also, there's a lot of billboards all on the on ramp that are like, look at this, look at this. And, and that's that's going to make it even harder for your readers. So I think, but the advantage of going deep like that is then you can create this very sort of immersive sense of the world that lets your reader know, okay, I'm right off the bat. Okay, this is a thing I've just got to go in and pay attention and just go with the ride that this is taking me on. Because, I mean, one of the things we always talk about in this on this podcast is, the, is our choose versus presume paradigm and when you go deep like that it is you're telling the reader all of your presumptions are out the window so just accept that and <laughs> and just come along with the weird stuff that we're doing just lean into it just lean in about um just reader trust right like yeah. establishing that kind of reader trust and to see the payoff for that and maybe fulfilling certain promises earlier in the to kind of say, okay, you paid attention to this, so here's what it means, and here's the reveal, and you know, here's here's a little reward for paying attention. I think something like that can go a long way, you know, in in basically allowing the reader to take more risks with you and your storytelling when you have larger world building elements that you kind of want them to focus on, but also kind of forget. So you have your big reveal, and you're like, just come along for the ride. So establishing that kind of trust, I think, is super important. The one thing I think about too is it that kind of depth can establish for a reader right away in a book, what kind of book is this? Like, what are these vibes? And when you kind of like lean into that, I know that, that Cass and I are probably more like aesthetic and vibey sort of world builders, <laughs> at least at the beginning, um, that we know what we want the world to feel like and look like. And when we the reader plunges into it, that like they, they could hashtag it, right? Like there are hashtags that they could like, this is the kind of world I'm in. And I think that when you have that depth figured out, you have those like very tactile sensory elements also often woven into that because you know what it's going to feel like, you know what it's going to look like, you know what it's going to smell like, whatever piece that you've kind of like drilled down in on. So that's one thing that for me, when I get to like play with depth, one of the reasons I'm doing it is, well, partially to feed my own preferences in terms of like aesthetics and vibe. Um, but also to establish things like my voice in the opening pages of that story. What is it going to sound like? What kind of a story am I telling? What does it feel like? And kind of playing from there that the world building elements are going to be a big part of that. And I think if you establish sort of early on, like, are we in a more absurdist world? Are we in a more grimdark world? Are we in something that is softer? that will help them digest 
the bits of world building you're giving them in the right ways. I think in the like a more absurdist world, you can get away with mentioning a strange bit of your world building once that you never return to again, because if the reader knows it's an absurdist tone, they'll sort of be like, oh, okay, that's a weird thing. And I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to be thinking about when it's going to come back. But if it's a more serious tone and you do something like mention, like, I don't know, like, there are mole people living in the tunnels beneath the city who are actual moles, like they're, they're actual, like, rodent human hybrids. If you mention that to me early in a serious toned book, the whole book, I'm going to be waiting for when they become important in some way. I assume the mole person revolution is coming. Like. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like I'm waiting for that or I'm waiting for our heroes to have to take, uh, you know, that's going to be their journey to the underworld in a sense. And, you know, sort of the archetypal things that are going to have to go meet the mole people and treat with the mole people or something. Or at like, least some sort of mole ex machina at the end. <laughs> yeah. Like if you introduce something big like that in a serious tone, the reader wants it to pay off. They're, they're Chekhov's mole people. <laughs> But in an absurdist world, you can get away with just being like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. It's totally normal to us and moving on. You can always tell, like, when the writer had a bunch of... I, th I think we should just coin the term Coco Chanel ideas. <laughs> <laughs> you can always tell when they when they have that and that becomes the thing that the, the, the darling they didn't want to kill. And so it's like, it's just, it's in the book, even though it has nothing to do with the story in the book, but they wanted to make sure you knew this fun little bit of history that they came up with, or this, this one weird thing that they can do with magic that does not apply whatsoever. The editor could not talk them down. Yeah, from. The editor... <laughs> it's just well, lines and lines of exposition. I do wonder though that, especially when you're building sequels and, you know, writing a series, etc., just the ability to kind of leave little Easter eggs and little threads open, which can blossom into whole plot lines for future books. I think that's a that's a difficult skill to kind of, you know, really hone in on, especially with Easter eggs, etc. And as you said, Marshall, like sometimes it is super easy to tell that this this bit has just been put in there because the author loved it so much. And that is the only reason why it's in there. But then sometimes it pays off in sequels. So there's, I think there's a fine line between like putting it in there because you don't want to kill your darlings and also putting it in there for foreshadowing and for sequels. And I don't know, how do you guys, how do you guys deal with that when you're building, um, or building a series? I did some of that and then regretted it because <laughs> the seeds did not pay off ultimately in the way that when I very first started the project, I had hoped they would. And I actually... They were very small things, but when I re-released From Unseen Fire recently, I actually trimmed those sentences out. I was like, these are not going anywhere. They, they did not flourish. It is time to prune them now that I have the opportunity to do so. <laughs> Bloop. Out they go. I, I think for me, I, I did have the, I guess in some ways, benefit of I wrote the first book as a potential standalone with the potential to build it out if, if that's what occurred in terms of like publishing deals and all of that nonsense um so for me it was actually a lot of going back in and like seeding it with things i knew i was gonna play with later instead of leaving things deliberately open but it's also funny that i found that a lot of things that i would because you do just have to have those kind of mentions of well this is this person from this place because that's how we communicate with people right and then i could go back and and i actually used some of those later and was kind of like okay well what does that mean who is that person let's make them a character or like let's let's look more into that place like i know it's there we mentioned it but now let's actually flesh it out more completely so it was um less 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 deliberate 
like leaving darlings in and more like I, I did not develop that at all. That was a throwaway sentence that worked for its purpose because it was just there as, oh, who's that gentleman in the corner? Oh, that's so-and-so. Let's get a drink. You could kind of, you know, go back to those and say, okay, well, let's imagine that we have to play in the sandbox that we already created. What toys are here that I haven't exactly built out to their full potential? There, there's also the thing, like, you'll be writing and you have a bit that, for all intents and purposes, you just need to be like, this person came from, like, brackets, city that's not here, and... <laughs> And it really doesn't matter, but at the same time, in coming up with a thing for that bracket, you've now created something else that then maybe you can play with and maybe will you know pay off later or maybe not. And that's okay. I mean, I, I really admire the kind of people who can world build like that, who are just like writing along just like, and the holy order of bracket, come back and find it later. And... What is it? They don't know. They don't know yet. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We just <laughs> we just put brackets and come back there. And it astounds me that anybody can write like that because my brain would seize up and like, no, I need to know what the Holy Order is. And now I need to figure out their entire history. <laughs> and I mean, these, these are the sorts of problems I make for myself whenever I'm writing. And so then I will do the thing where if I'm going to do that, then... Oh no! I need to. I need to put a pin in something that's going to pay off later. Which, I mean, if you go back through and read the early books of of the Meridane saga, you will probably see some stuff that, having read the later ones, you'd be like, "Oh wow, he really did set that up all the way back here." Genius. <laughs> I have this um, in the spirit of you know sharing all kinds of metaphors. So I have one. <laughs> I like to think of world building often as like looking at this vast night sky with a telescope and you know you can see a whole bunch of stars through a telescope and some of them are super bright and maybe those are your plot elements or your character elements or your world building elements and those are the ones you kind of dance around and then you have stars which are way back which are not super bright but you can kind of see them twinkling and they kind of more in terms of the width and the breadth of world building, you know, they kind of show up every now and then and they don't necessarily mean very much for the plot. And then you take off the telescope altogether and you have this great big night sky, which is super full. Um, but you don't need to really focus on all those elements at all. You don't even need to maybe mention them at all. Like as long as you as a writer kind of knows that it's there and you can kind of mine it eventually or you have a secret little note or a turn of phrase or some such thing, you know, in the book, which you can eventually look at and then say, hey, this is also what I meant, you know, so double entendre kind of a thing, then it can work really well. So often when I'm world building, I tend to look at it like that. So I only have like four or five different elements, which I'm looking at through my telescope, but I'm also aware, at least to a certain extent, that there are stars in the night sky, which I'm not fully able to see right now either through the telescope or without, but they're there. And eventually I might need to focus on that part of the sky. I mean, I think it's interesting because whether you map everything out in your world before you start, or you totally fly the seat of your pants and have like a vague world building idea, or you do the telescope like you were describing, you have to start somewhere, right? And I think being really intentional about where you start is smart. Because if you know the kind of story you want to tell and the kind of plot you're going to have, and you zero in on those elements to go deep on, 
like you set up the things you really need and the things you're really going to want to play with up front. And then maybe maybe you're the kind of world builder who then does want to go in and build out absolutely everything else before you really get too into it. Um, but you still started somewhere. You still started with some kind of like a few tentpole core ideas. And one thing that I kind of often think about is that anything that you do in a world, you're tipping over a domino. Like you've tipped it over, it's gonna knock other things down along the way. And so when you set up the things that are very important to you early, you haven't written yourself into a corner where you're like, oh crap, I wanted to have a society that property is all shared communally. But I set it up way in the beginning that the nuclear family like passes down inheritances. Well, how does that work? I totally screwed myself over. What now? So like you set up those things are like, this is core, this is important. These are the pieces that are going to support that beautiful Sistine Chapel ceiling that Cass was talking about. And you, it's not just a lack of clutter, but it's also like an establishment of focus. And the challenge there, I think often is to not succumb to building wide when that happens, when you do write yourself into a corner, right? Is to say, here are my world building elements. How can I look at them in a different way to write myself out of this corner or, you know, mine these from a different perspective again, uh, instead of introducing a brand new element, which is, uh, which is, you know, is a DSX machina. Yeah, like, oh, see, I fixed it by creating another thing that will cause more <laughs> problems for me later. Little did we know that the whole time the Imperial Army was marching through here and we're going to rescue us. <laughs> we never even mentioned that there was an empire, but hey, <laughs> it just didn't come well, up. Well, see, the mole people gave right. them safe passage, so, <laughs> yeah. See, that's how it all ties together. I feel like I have seen something where there was just sort of like a throwaway mention of something like the mole people like and then in the end it's like oh yeah they came and rescued like that was actually the dsx machina it's like where did that come from you know we did we did mention it early on but i can't think of what it was but i feel like i've seen something that did exactly that and if i saw that in a book i would have to wonder if that was the writer's plan all along or if they just gotten themselves into a corner wrote the mole people ex machina and then were like Shit, I, I should mention them earlier <laughs> so that this doesn't... All right, let's just 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 insert it somewhere. And then, okay, cool, I'm fine. I've covered my bases. We're I'm good. Fine. Or they sent it into their editor and they're just like, you have this thing with the mole people rescuing them at the end. And they're, they never come up before. You... <laughs> or after, by the way. <laughs> That's when you go into Microsoft Word or Scrivener or one of your you know software thingies. And then you're like... 25% mention the more people, 25% mention the more people, and then, you know, do a little trail of crumbs, and then you're like, see, editor, I fixed it. I still don't feel the more people are an integral part of this space. <laughs> no, no, they're a thematic element. Yeah, I'm just not see? thinking hard enough. Yeah. Everyone just thinks the more people about... are so normal that they don't talk about them. Everyone just knows they're there. <laughs> It's, it's actually a metaphor for the human subconscious, and it's very deep, trust me. It's, it's very deep. We, we, are, we are all rescued by our own interiority. This is when you can tell a book's been written by a philosophy major or something. Like, I mean, that's just literary fiction now. Right? Right? I don't know. You might want to edit that part out. <laughs> no. no. Nope. If you're good, I'm good. I crack on literary fiction plenty. Yes. It just occurred to me, you always see those literary fictions that like just basically do a science fiction plot and then 
and just be act like they reinvented the wheel and it would amuse me to no end a very literary novel that just has this like blatant fantasy element <laughs> just sort of shows up out of nowhere like mole people and it's just like there were always mole people and it, it means something it means something deep Booker's prize and this prize and that prize <laughs> one thing I, I was thinking too is how when you have an element that you've really pulled the thread on and gone really deep all the ways that that can also inspire other elements of your writing, whether other world building or plot elements or character or whatever. Um, do, do you find yourself becoming inspired by your own world building? Is it uh, narcissistic to say no, yes? No, it's not at all. No, no. <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, I think there's, you know, moments of inspiration where you're like, oh my God, look at this. Look at, look at, you know, this thing that I embedded into the text, which I didn't even know would work in this particular way. And then it does. And you're like, just totally solves my plot problem. Why didn't I see this before? I've, you know, I've been waiting for like three days or five days or a week or two months, like trying to figure this problem out. And it's already kind of the solution is in the text already. So yeah, that happens all the time. And it's, it's one of the most fun parts of writing, I think for me, I think also the way that I tend to write is um, right from planning stages. I do tend to tie the world and the character conflict and thematic elements really tightly. So I do try to make them work like double duty or triple duty um, right from the get go. I have like these intersecting maps between them that I kind of draw. And so when, when it does surprise me that an element is feeding into another in a unique, surprising way, um, as much of a planner as I am, I think that that part really happens in discovery writing for me. And it's just so rewarding when that happens. Yeah, I love the part where you're like following a rabbit trail, like wherever it's going to lead, either either just thinking it through for world building and kind of like like just developing the idea or having to do like the background research to figure out, well, how would this work? How would this function? And then you stumble on another idea and you stumble on something else. And then you end up with kind of like, it's depth, but it's like depth with roots, like the little tendrils kind of like coming off of it in a bunch of directions because you've sort of like gotten multiple ideas out of just one or two ideas that they kind of just chain off in all directions. Well, the other thing is, ideally, if you're doing this kind of world building, you're doing it because you're just getting so geeked out on going deep and wild with this stuff as you're doing. And thus, you should be inspiring yourself to, like, go further and, like, oh, what else can this do? What else can this mean? I think very early in my writing career, I was seeing a panel, I want to say with Stephen Bruce. That sounds right, where he said, every sequel you write to the, to your first book, you're essentially writing fanfic of yourself. Beca and it's like, because you're just so geeked out about what you've done that you want to keep playing with it. <laughs> and I think that's just such a beautiful description of the idea of like, of that, I mean, it is a little narcissistic, but who cares, that you just love Everything you're doing so much that you're like, no, I, I got to do more. Where does this go? Where does going down this rabbit hole lead me? I want to find out. And that's, I mean, that to me is is the real joy of it all. And taking that to all the weird, deep places you can go far under the ground. I mean, even before you get to sequels, like you would better love what you're doing, considering the hundreds of hours that you're going to spend drafting, revising, editing the thing. Like you'd better love it. <laughs> and sometimes it can be those deep world building elements that are like this I love this I'm going to keep coming back to this because you know what I really love this 
I think you really do have to start from a place of love because at some point you are going to hate it. <laughs> so if you start from a place of disliking it, boy, there's going to be problems. So yeah. <laughs> you better start from a place of love because you will dip down into that. Yeah. And then, you know, with luck, you'll find yourself back into loving it. Something you said, Marshall, kind of reminded me of one of my favorite books, Foundry Side, uh, because the world building in that is just beautiful. And it goes really deep. And to me, it feels like if that magic existed, like you could repeat the things that are happening in that world, um, in our world, it just goes so deep that you can see the bones of the magic, which is one of the most fun things for me, like to figure out how magic works, what makes magic break, you know, what are the limitations of magic, what are some new cool things that people don't know. Um, and I think one of the things that as writers we tend to do or we we like doing just understanding what what the magic is, what it can do, what are the limitations of it. One of the things that I think as writers that we tend to do is we like to know every single piece of it. But I think leaving ourselves open to, you know, these are things that I myself don't know about how this world works, I think can introduce an element of realism into the text. Because how much do we know about our world, right? Like there's so many different spaces in, within our own knowledge system that we don't know how things work. And I think introducing that level of um, doubt within our own work um, can often like work wonders, even for our characters. Like they don't necessarily need to know everything about the world. Maybe they just know pieces of it and maybe those pieces are wrong. So even the magic systems can just can provide like different perspectives and new ways to look at it for the characters themselves, even if they do you know, follow a hard magic system rule. Someone asked me very early on after From Unseen Fire was published if the magic in the books was like, because it, it comes from the gods, and if it really came from the gods or if people just thought it came from the gods. And I went, I have no idea. doesn't matter to me because the characters in this world all have this paradigm. And as far as they're concerned, it comes from the gods. So I didn't need to figure out more than that because it, it would not matter outside of it. And I think, too, about like in the... Um, in A Song of Ice and Fire, George R. R. Martin sets up a world that has these crazy seasons, and no one in his world understands why. And he has not yet explained to the reader why, and there's all kinds of crazy fan theories about it, and who knows if, <laughs> if the last two books ever come out, if it will even be explained within those. But it's just sort of interesting. It's like it's a fact of their world that they do not understand. They know they don't understand it. Some people are trying to understand it, but most people just sort of like, we live with this condition. That's how things are. Yeah, it's how <laughs> things are. It's unpredictable. We roll with it as best we can. It's like asking a fish to explain the ocean. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, it's what it is, and <laughs> we deal with it as we have to. And that, to me, feels very real for people, for characters. It's right. one of the things my husband and I argue about a lot, because... Um, Often when I'm building a world, I'll just, you know, throw ideas and start talking them out loud and he'll start to question them and like, you know, poke holes in the logic, which is great because it helps me, you know, fill those gaps. But at some point he'll come to um, he'll come to a question like, but tell me how this works and like, why isn't it this way? And I'm like, this is fiction. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> I think as an author, you have to know where that line is for you. Like, how much do I have to explain these things for myself and how much of it is just that's just the way things work over there. That's just, in this particular universe, it's how things work. Maybe the laws of physics are different. I don't know. It just, it works. It just works. But you're the creator. You're the god of this world. No, I'm not. I'm the victim here. <laughs> you really can be both, I think. <laughs> and I think, too, that, like, the impulse to ask those questions is something that has changed over time. Because if you look at 
early Star Trek, early Star Wars, even a lot of things within Lord of the Rings, as much as Tolkien thought about some things, he clearly did not put together others, at least on the page. And it's like, Star Trek and Star Wars, how does their faster than light tech work? No one thought about that in the beginning. No one asked those questions in the beginning. <laughs> it was like, it's just there's it's because of the drive. It works. It's fine. I think just sort of over years of fandom, and I think especially in the last couple of decades with the internet, fans ask those questions more. And so authors sort of have to prepare themselves to answer those questions more. And so I think more of the answers are starting to find their way onto the page so that it's preemptively answered for the people who want to poke at things. It's just an interesting transition over the decades of, of this genre. I feel the pressure. I don't know if you do. I'd love to hear from you guys. Just, you know, fans oh. kind of coming at you and being like, does this work or does this not work? How does this work? And in my head, I'm like, oh my God, everything needs to work. It has to work perfectly. And I'm like, <laughs> at the end of it, I'm like, who cares? Like, do people care? I don't know. I guess I, I care about making it internally consistent to some degree. And beyond that, I don't really worry about it. Like I, the next book that I have coming out, it's it's like historical fantasy with like fairies so it's clearly not real there really were not fairies crossing the veil in like 1900s midwestern rural towns but if there were i wanted to keep it internally consistent as to why and how and how that would work but i didn't yeah i didn't feel the need to necessarily answer the physics of how there is a fae world in tandem with our own um because at some point it ceases to be fiction at that angle and becomes like theoretical physics and i'm not doing that <laughs> What's the frequency of hyperreality that the fairies live on? <laughs> At the same time, I do feel like when, especially when you're doing secondary world fantasy and you add magic into it, I, I feel that is one of those things where you do have to pay attention to where your dominoes are falling because magic becomes the big like, like okay, if they can, if this exists, then why, why are they doing this other thing? And why are you know, why aren't they doing this one thing? Like, if you have mages who have this kind of power, why are they Why are they not in charge? Shouldn't, wouldn't they be? Shouldn't they be? Do they decide not to be? And, like, all the, all the ways in which magic can affect the way your world works and thus the presumptions that you're making about your world, there, there is the tendency for we won't name names for there to be fantasy that's like this is exactly like renaissance europe except there's also magic which changed nothing except for the when we wanted to change something i mean you and also the same with a lot of historical and urban fantasy it's like everything went exactly like it went in our history except there's magic that's secret except it's not a secret I think it's going to be interesting too. Like, what do you choose? What questions do you choose to answer, and which ones do you choose to leave unanswered, especially with magic? Yeah. Um, because I think that you know, not that it can't be done well to have everything explained absolutely down to like the atom of how magic works, but um, I really enjoy it when things aren't completely explained and it's just this is how we understand it this is how different cultures understand it you can have the same magic operating in different places but people understand it differently and so they have a different myth that they build up around it, or different explanations for it and like which, which one's true well it, all of them are true because people believe them to be true like i kind of intentionally left a major question of magic unanswered in the Unraveled Kingdom books, which is, is it innate or is it something that's taught? And you're kind of like led to believe it's innate kind of in the beginning. And then like the last chapter, the last book, and this isn't like a spoiler, but I have the, the main character saying like, 
maybe we all just can do this, but we haven't been taught. So, you know, sometimes those unanswered questions can do more work, I think, than answering them can. And sometimes those can lead into really interesting places to take sequels to, um, or just to explore the plot themselves, right? Like, I think as much as you kind of know about the magic system yourself or your characters kind of know, it's what they don't know or what they've mistaken, I think, which can lead to really interesting places. I always love thinking about how a world develops in in response to things like that, things like magical practice over time. I love thinking backwards and forwards in a world like what did people used to think about it? What are they going to think about it 300 years from now? Melissa Caruso has had an amazing opportunity to show that in, in her series because she had a time jump between one trilogy and the next. And so you do get to see within the same world the evolution of of thought around a lot of these and the evolution of practice around like the um, the artificers, the magic that they have and, and what they can do with the blending of magic and technology. It's like, that is fascinating. I love that. I love thinking of them not as static things within a world, but as changeable and developing. So one thing I am curious about and giving us another chance to talk about your book, Critica, but what were some of the, I guess, pillar world building elements that you started with? Well, the characters themselves were a huge part of the world building for me. I knew that one of them could do the magic and one of them would not be able to and that it was going to be a husband-wife kind of story. So just having that conflict embedded right into the world from the beginning can give me a lot of thematic insight into the world itself. So that was one part of it. The second part of it was that there would be jungle storms because I just really liked the aesthetic of jungles and plants. So I was like, I'm going to run with that and have this a living city and jungle storms. So in the surviving sky, you have these floating plant cities, which are essentially above the earth. And the earth itself is just ravaged by storms called earth rages, which come and go. So for me, all of those elements essentially were there right from the beginning. Um, the one thing I did, um, and I tend to do this with every book I write, is I condense the entire plot into a Twitter pitch. And I'm like, what are the most important things that I should really focus on? And that really worked for me, even to just uh, describe what parts of the world I want to focus on. So it was, um, yeah, that was my process. I love how plant heavy it was. I feel like plants <laughs> don't get enough love. In fantasy. Yeah, so I also really that during that. the pandemic when like <laughs> all of us were either making sourdough or caring for plants. So, <laughs> do you have plants? Are are you like a plant person? I am. Yeah, um, I got that from my mom, and so, and I even managed to keep a whole bunch of plants alive during the pandemic, which is saying something. It's very impressive. I, I I'm bad at plants. I kill. If I don't kill them, my cats do. So yeah, it's a big <laughs> a zero something. It's like oh, it's gonna die one way or another. So. You can either overwater them or underwater them. They're not I, that simple. Yeah. I think I'm a chronic overwaterer because I'm always worried that I'm not giving them enough and then I cause a different problem. As a new mom, I can say in some ways it is easier to take care of a little baby than it has been to take care of certain <laughs> plants. During- the baby sort of lets you know when it needs something, right? Like, right. The plant just sits there. <laughs> <laughs> like, tell me something. <laughs> can I get your need, bonsai tree? <laughs> There's a world-building element for you, listeners, if you want to uh, take that and run with it. Plants that can communicate their needs. Oh, I don't know. It's kind of a little shop of horrors. Because when they do start to communicate their needs, no, that's it's true. Not, it's pretty. Mm, valid point. Valid I wonder point. what they would want. 
I have I have an old friend who is has been eternally working on his work in progress that he refers to as druid punk, and I'm not entirely sure what that means, but but I feel that that's that's tied right to that. It's like getting the plants to communicate what they need. And yes, I'm sorry. I'm just sitting here imagining like really emotionally needy oak trees. <laughs> you never come walk in my grove anymore. Did I do something wrong? Bitter Why don't you come visit me? A couple of pines that just don't like each other. The listeners, my book has plants, but not quite plants like these. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think before we ran ourselves off the rail, we were considering like what the what the initial pillars or the initial threads being pulled on were in, in various worlds. Something I would sort of love to know from so many authors when I read a book. I always want to be like, can I tell sort of like what the first kernel was or would I have to find that out by, you know, cornering them at a convention and asking? Yeah. Like some of them, it's like it, it, it's on the tin, right? You're like this. This obviously must have been, you know. You started with the big idea of like, you know, this world has gigantic, you know, bone structures and people are living at the top of them and they don't see the ground. Like that's probably where they started from. Is, is that right there? Or, or guess. you know, like the, the Temeraire series. Like I, yeah, you know, I was Napoleonic, that, yep. yeah, Napoleonic with Wars, dragons. add dragons. Okay. That's, that's a great premise. It's a great starting point. And it does become more complex as, as the story branches out to other cultures and all kinds of things. But that's clearly where it began. Like, what if we had dragons in, <laughs> in the Napoleonic Wars right there? Do you feel like it takes away your enjoyment of a series or a book if you can kind of pinpoint those um, elements right away to say like these were the big ones that kind of the author started off with? Or do you feel like it doesn't matter? I think as long as it's done, this is a cop-out answer, as long as it's done well. Um, but as long as it doesn't feel like it's um, a gimmick, mm -hmm. you know, I still, I really enjoy it. Even if I can say like, oh yeah, I see, I see, I see, I see what we're doing here. Because I mean, I think that what, like for example, Temporary for me, what makes that book so enjoyable is is the characters and the relationship between the main characters you know that gets developed to a point that even though i can see the shtick i know where it started like it it develops into something that's fully fleshed out and doesn't feel gimmicky so as long as you can kind of forget that okay you know i have this initial knowledge but then you're carried <laughs> away by the story and you're like oh you know what like the story's kind of sucked me in and yeah, it works I don't, I don't care anymore yeah that's a hope that we have with our readers as well, right? Like some super astute readers and entrenched <laughs> fans of the genre and who can immediately pick up on all of these things. And they're like, well, just read the story. I hope it carries you along. Again, not, not, not to name any names, but you can always tell when, when a story started with a big idea like that and then they sort of ran out of steam at a certain point. And you can, you can feel that like, well, now I'm just... I'm just treading water to get to the end because really I didn't I didn't have a full novel's worth of idea here. I just had a big idea that got me to the beginning and I had a pitch. I had a pitch and that was You can tell the novels that started with a really good pitch but didn't know where to go from there but so, but somehow managed to drag themselves across the finish line anyway. But Again, I'm not. I'm not going to shame or shade any <laughs> any specific people. But you know, you've you've read those books. We know the the ones too that have written, and I think this is a depth versus breadth issue to some degree. The ones that have written a world for a character, and it feels like you've mm -hmm. you've created a maze for this particular rat to run through. Oh yeah. 
because I think that is a lack of depth in some ways that this world is not existing on its own merit at all. You're not, you know, diving down into these elements and saying, well, what are they, what does this really look like? How does this really work? How does it connect a little bit with what's happening around it? You just create a maze for it, for a rat to run through. And I feel like that's one that there's been a couple that I've read that I'm like, I can see the complexity of this world building, but it's complexity that exists for the sole purpose of creating obstacles and mazes for this particular rat. It's kind of a two-dimensional complexity that is just on the wall of the maze, and you mm-hmm. get that sense that if the rat just chewed through the wall, and it would just be free, because there's nothing right. else and, out and there. And no other rats <laughs> are meant to run through this maze. Yeah. It is, it is this particular rat that we have bred for this maze. We cannot put a gerbil or a hamster or a mouse in it. It would not work. Because the rat is the chosen one. Because the rat is the chosen one. Yeah. <laughs> and not only would it not work, the maze would have no reason to exist. Like, if you lifted this character right. out, the world, the, the the rest of the characters just aren't doing anything. They're sort of... Ha- they exist. <laughs> Do they have they lives? Have no one knows or cares. Like, yeah. Right. What lives they have lack agency because it's not their maze. I think that's an interesting dilemma too, though, when you're trying to tie the character to the world and, you know, you want to tell the story of a particular character, but also how it relates to that world to not fall into that trap, you know, of creating this puzzle only for this particular character to give it more depth that other characters have maybe experienced it or, you know, have had some kind of interaction with it. I'm not a big fan of the chosen one trope myself, So, like, I get that frustration often in books when I read it. I'm like, oh, well, this problem has been created for you. So, of course, you're going to work your way through it. Like, we can see the end a mile from here. But I think it also speaks to other storylines where you are trying to marry the character to the world, to the conflict, to the plot in all of these interesting ways without it coming across as, you know, this is a problem created only for the character. So the world is not built around this character, but the world lives and breathes independently of a particular character that even if you take this piece out these problems will still exist right and with that also you get those things where the problems seem only to exist for the characters to solve and solving it is basically they show up and it's solved for all intents and purposes because again there's the depth and design just simply isn't there I like to be able to imagine. In I feel like we're just subtweeting I'm... a ton of stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> we only take shots at the ones that are big enough to take it, like George R. R. Martin and the Belgariad, you know? So speaking of J.K. Rowling. <laughs> we don't punch laterally and we don't punch down. We only punch way, way up. You have to be and, you huge or dead. And if and if George R. R. Martin would like to come on the podcast and defend and himself talk about us world building, yes. I'd be happy to discuss I it. Welcome it. <laughs> the seasons, George. Explain the damn seasons. <laughs> Animals cannot hibernate that long. It's a biological impossibility. How do families keep the same name for six thousand years? That's fine. <laughs> like Really? They're really devoted to they've, it. They've been Brandon Stark for 6,000 years? No. <laughs> There's a thing called linguistic drift, George. <laughs> well, I, I mean, m- maybe technically 6,000 years ago it was like Brumden Snurk, and we're just, we're just, you know, simplifying it and, and modernizing the, no, Cass is like, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not Do it. Do not try to excuse it. Do not, not explain it, it away. <laughs> unacceptable it's like either george martin explains it or no one else does (laughs) except nothing less 
yeah, yeah. Astronomy PhD husband was like, this does not work. <laughs> <laughs> just like end of story. It's like I think it's magical, magical, timey wimey, like nonsense. He's like, maybe. <laughs> I, would say, I can accept no. magical, magical, timey wimeyness. If you go, if you want to go to like the astrophysics of it, which I have in my stuff, that like there is like a part of like something else in orbit of their sun that when they go yeah. through it changes things for, for them. That's just this weird magical zone that they'll kind of go through every once in a while. And it orbits at its own speed. So that makes that makes things, you know, Unpre- unpredictable. Unpredictable. I can, I, I can believe. There's the magic equivalent of timey wimey. I, I mean that you know that's you just tell me that's what it is, and I'm like okay, fine. But I just want you to admit that that's what it is, right? <laughs> 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 but it can be very interesting if you're trying, if you're basically trying to make it work with whatever your weird magic rules are, but make it be a hard magic system that's consistent and still have that stuff sort of play around. I think eventually as well, the more like, and I, I do work with hard magic systems more often than not, but I also really like to like understand how the magic works and what it can do and cannot do. And not just the limitations in terms of what it can and cannot do, but also just, you know, how it works at an atomic level, because often I pull out like most interesting story threads from there. Um, but almost all hard magic systems eventually become soft the longer you examine them and the more you kind of dig deep into them and then you're like oh hand wave this and this is just intent and this is just you know some philosophical bs because i don't know how to explain this away it just is so uh to rowena's point earlier just about like what you reveal and what you conceal even within like a hard magic system i think consistency even when it comes to characters themselves just you know, what they understand of a system and how well um, they study it. If you have scholars or researchers, et cetera, within a system as well, like what are their interpretations of it? I think all of those can go in super interesting places while keeping the story contained and while keeping it to a hard magic system, but still allowing for that tendril of doubt and of uncertainty, I suppose. I was going to say, no matter how hard or soft your system is, you can still have within the context of your world, you're going to have somebody be the Galileo who's just going to be like, no, we're, we're going to do some stuff and figure out how this works. Or you're like, we're, we're going to find out the rules, whether or not they, they exist or not. And I think that can be a fun thing to play with, too. And I think it's interesting that you know, we can make the mistake of holding our fantasy worlds to standards that our real world is not held to. We don't understand how half this crap works. When you really drill down on it, like there's plenty of things that we're like, yeah, we we're working on that, but we actually we don't. And not even just science. Like you think about things like the the attempt to make a science out of economy. And I'm having some big feelings today about the Fed raising interest rates again, as though that's just going to like, oh, yes, this will fix inflation. And I'm like, will it, though? Do you know that? Or are you just guessing? You're just guessing, right? Economists are just making it all up. And I think that's actually can be a good like analog for magical systems like we're pretty sure it works like this we're not positive but we're gonna give it a go and find out this is our theory we're gonna run with it and we might explode the world we might not (laughs) let's see i was gonna say um max gladstone's uh what's the name of the series i'm blanking on the name of the series the one that starts with three parts dead and all but it's basically 
that's basically what their magic system is like a secondary world fantasy that the world is modern and the magic system is basically the economy and you know we'll we'll, we'll try and do this and see what happens we we think this will will have an effect who knows maybe not oops we killed a god whoops <laughs> I think that's what we often try to do as world builders, right? Like we can't really control our world. So we're like, what are some <laughs> elements of this, you know, fictitious world that I can control and what can I know about it? If I say things balance out this way, then they just balance out this way. It's just how it goes. But I think also like um, the Magician's TV show did a lot of that sort of experimental magic stuff too. Like we have these books. We're not sure we translated them right. This might be the spell or it might cause us all to explode. Let's find out. And then they do kill a god. So it's it's fun. I like seeing that. I like seeing competing theories. I like seeing the experimental thaumaturgy. Yeah, I was going to say they also had a lot of fun with like, oh, magic is broken. We'll do a thing to fix it. We sort of fixed oh, it. We broke it a different way. <laughs> and it just came a cycle of them continuing to break it in different ways. <laughs> there you start the spiral. <laughs> One of my favorite things as well with world building is... Um, I know we're talking a lot about like how hard magic systems tend to often devolve into soft magic systems one way or the other and um, and just mining different elements for things. But one thing that I really enjoy myself is how even though the reader or, you know, if you're watching a show, like you might not necessarily be focusing on those particular plot elements or world building elements, they're kind of happening in the background. And when you watch it a second time or a third time, or you're reading it another time, and then you're like, oh my God, this stuff is happening in the background. And it is so cool. Like to me, that is one of the most satisfying experiences as, as a consumer, because yeah, that's incredible. So to me, it shows like, oh, here are all of these things that, you know, the writer or um, the producer, exactly like they've really thought of and they're all working in tandem in the background and they haven't like tried to you know show it off they're not like oh here look at this look at how you know genius i am or anything it's just like and and to me it just shows how real that world can be it allows me to be so immersed in that world um and i just i just love that i, I know that the expanse the tv show i haven't finished reading the books but uh, the tv show does this in this amazing way you're not really focusing on you know those things in the background but then you kind of pause and you zoom in or you're watching it again and you're like oh my god like this is amazing like they thought of this like down to the last detail and yeah like that is just so satisfying so i think we're coming up the end of our hour and as is tradition here when we have a guest, we invite you to add a bit of trivia to put into the world that we have been building online over the madcap course of this podcast, which we swear we're going to really like get all this, all these. I really will together. someday, I promise. <laughs> I really will. And make it into something more cohesive but we've we've been we've been we've been building along and adding more and more new elements to it so we invite you to add a new element to it cool okay so i'm gonna go with an element that we talked about earlier um it is going to be a talking plant and your world only has one talking plant <laughs> one species of talking plant or literally just one plant just one plant so you know gotta keep it alive i guess or you know if it's like a shit talking yeah. bad mouthing plant then do with it as you will start pulling your leaves off you talk like that this is this is like this is like rowena tries to keep her succulent alive but it's like there's stakes now because it's the only talking one and it can guilt you if you're doing a bad job yes 
I love it. This is fantastic. I love it. I don't know where we're going to put it. We'll figure out who gets it. I think someone else someone else is taking care of it, not me. A monastic order or something that's near there that like yeah. they take care of it. Absolutely. But like yeah. wines in the middle of the night like, I'm thirsty. It's, it's your turn to deal with the plant again. I did it last night. I need a drink of water. Why did we even get this plan? You wanted it. You wanted it. <laughs> Why did I join the take care of the plant order? You you made it sound so cool, but no. All our friends have plants, none of those talk. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been super fun. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Thanks again. Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up June 8th where Foz Meadows will join us to talk about reimagining the shape of relationships in your world. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the world you're making and help us all build until it hurts.